offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, and it is my pleasure to join you this week too on the continuation of this series where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. The last week we went through an episode primarily speaking about Omkara. I didn't uh, cover much of the Gita shloka as such. There was one statement that Krishna made in the 8th verse of the 7th chapter that we are going through. And uh, starting from there, I spoke primarily about Pranava, what Swami says about it. What is the significance of that one statement that Krishna makes? And the statement is, Pranavaha Sarva Vedeshu. I am Pranava in the Vedas. So most of last week was about that one statement. I went into Swami's literature and I brought out uh, a few aspects that Swami has spoken. We discussed how the Pranava is referred to as the Anahata Dhvani. That sound which is not created by striking something or by any other means that we otherwise know of, of how sounds are created. It is almost like the silence from which all sounds emanate. The silence that is the Adhara for all sounds. And when we speak about the Vedas, the Vedas are like the first manifestation of that Anahata Dhvani. As we saw, Vedas come under that category of sounds which are referred to as Pashyanti which have been seen. So in that sense, when Krishna says, I am the pranava behind the Vedas, it means it is that divine silence which was the cause even for these Vedas to emanate. And that's a very profound statement that Krishna makes in that particular verse. As I said, we also went through some passages from the Upanishads and from Swami's writings, where Swami speaks of the glory of pranava, but it is definitely not a comprehensive study or comprehensive presentation on what Swami himself has spoken about Pranava. Maybe that's for some of the time, some of the series, or some of the episode completely. And this is not going to be the only time we're going to listen But Krishna speaking about the Pranava too. It is going to come again later. So maybe at that time we will take up a little more as we go through the Bhagavad Gita. Then we went through a portion of the ninth shloka. I did not even have the time to complete one full shloka completely. That was again a continuation of the kind of statements that Krishna is making in this particular series of shlokas where he speaks of the defining quality of something and he says, I am that. In the portion of the ninth shloka that we went through, Krishna makes this statement. He says, Prithivyam in the earth, punya gandaha, sweet fragrance, vibhavasau, cha, and in the fire, tejaha asmi. I am brilliance. Prithivyam punya gandaha, vibhavasau, tejaha asmi. I am the sweet fragrance in earth, and I am the brilliance in fire. We spoke about the significance of saying that I am the smell in earth. The quality of smell is one of the qualities that is born along with the Tanmatra Prithvi. Right? Just like how he said about Akasha, how he spoke about 
the uh, element of water, the element of fire and the element of earth is being mentioned here. So this is a continuation of, of the examples of that Krishna has been giving of how the defining aspect of various elements and entities can be recognized as the divine in those entities. But what he says about smell is very interesting because he qualifies the smell. He does not say, I am smell in earth. He says, Punya Gandha, I am the sweet fragrance. And also he says, I am the brilliance in fire. Fire also has the quality of being destructive. But he says, I am the sweet fragrance and I am the brilliance. Almost like referring to two positive qualities in earth and fire. And as I was mentioning to you even the last week, towards the end of last week's episode, at this point, had Arjuna asked the question, O Krishna, who is the unpleasant smell in that case? If you are saying, I am the Puntyagandha, who is the unpleasant smell? If you say that you are the brilliance in the fire, who then is the destructive power in fire that causes hurt and harm to others? What do you think would have been Krishna's reply? Krishna would have said, Of course, that is me as well. That is the jnana drishti or the samadrishti, the wise insight or the sight which makes you see everything as equal that Krishna was speaking about a couple of uh, chapters ago. Or It is something that makes a presence in various chapters. right? When Krishna in one of the shlokas he said, I am the dog, I am the elephant, I am the dog eater, I am the Brahmin, I am also this, I am also that. The idea was to cover everything that is pleasant and unpleasant and says that I am everything and one who sees me in all of this is a jnani, right? It's one of the statements that Krishna had made and keeps making quite often periodically as we go through the Gita. But the means to that knowledge, means to that samadrishti is being pointed out by Krishna in the shlokas. Because it is through this para-prakriti, recognizing the para-prakriti in the apara-prakriti is one of the methods that Krishna is offering here and that is a very beautiful and significant point for all of us. Can we make this a habit? Can we make this practice in our everyday life? Every time we experience something special, something pleasant, something beautiful, like the fragrance of a flower, the fresh smell after rain, a beautiful sunset, for that matter, even a sip of refreshing coffee or tea. Can we remember God? Can we recollect the presence of Swami? And from this stage, the stage of Samadrishti is reached after that, right? Where when we are in pain, when we are in trouble, we are able to think of God and we are able to recognize God even in those aspects. So when Krishna is saying, I am the Punya Gandha, I am the brilliance, I am the sweet aspect of this, the pleasant aspect of that, it is not to mean that he is not the unpleasant. The whole idea is to understand that there is only one, there is no two, there is no pleasant and unpleasant, good and bad, everything. The existence of duality is itself an illusion. But to get there, the means is, Krishna is saying, can you constantly look for the divine aspect in whatever you are seeing? So it was in this context that I was making a reference to as I was concluding last week that there is a very beautiful poem that uh, even we all have read many, many times as students 
the reason how we happen to read them is there is this wonderful book called premadhara and most of our listeners would be familiar with that we have done a few programs on this book as well uh, not a complete comprehensive program on the book because the premadhara is a compilation of the many letters that sami has written to the students of the brindavan hostel in the 70s and also in the 80s sami used to spend a lot of time in brindavan and uh, for the major festivals sami would go to parthi and during such times sami would often write letters to the students and these are very very profound letters revealing some divine aspects about swami and what swami's expectations so we have done a few programs calling out a few letters from these books there are some articles on our website where some of these letters during the various occasions swami has written has been published coming back to the poem that i was talking about so the first page in this book used to contain this poem that i'm making a reference to the actual author of this poem or should i say the worldly author or the instrument who brought this poem to us was a gentleman by name joel and it was first published in sanatan sarathi without his name because he said that i am sure that i have not come up with this or i have not composed this it is purely swami's inspiration so that is how it was first published and brought to the notice of devotees it is actually if you want to read the sequence of events that eventually led to this poem being conceived by mr joel you should go and read the book divine memories of satyasai baba by diana baskin mr joel happens to be the husband of mrs diana baskin so that's why you can find the poem if you want to read the sequence of events which eventually very very beautiful and dramatic sequence of events which eventually lead to the composition or the reception of this poem if i could put it that way in fact uh, there's a wonderful memory associated with this poem my team member and member of the telugu team brother ganesh we all know that apart from being a good speaker and good presenter and rga and all of that he is also one of the senior members of the prashanti dance group and he has trained and performed in front of swami many many times so in the year 2004 when we were completing our masters and when we were presenting a gratitude program in front of swami but the ganesh had actually danced for a recitation of this poem and swami was so pleased with that recital and that presentation swami made him perform it again that same evening and again the next day so three or four times swami made him dance and repeat that it's a very profound poem and the reason why i'm quoting that poem here is it conveys the idea i feel this portion of the bhagavad gita is trying to convey it is made of two parts The first part of the poem says you ask how will you know when i am near you how do you recognize swami's presence how do you feel swami's presence near you and in the lines that follow in the poem he relates what i was just trying to say can you think of swami when everything anything that is pleasant is experienced and then the second part of the poem goes then you ask how will you know when you are near me and under that the poet writes how you are near god when you are able to love him even in the most unpleasant of situations so it's a very beautiful poem and i have no doubt it is divinely inspired i can see that even from the way swami responded to it when brother ganesh danced for it 
Also, the closing lines are very apt to what we have been discussing about these shlokas in this chapter. But instead of me reading out that poem, I would love to do that. But I would like to play a rendition of that poem. I've been dying to use this rendition ever since I've been doing the radio answering booth. The opportunity never came by. So today, finally, the opportunity has presented itself. So I don't want to miss it. So I want to play a beautiful rendition of this poem. This is actually from a drama that was staged by some devotees from Australia in Swami's presence. And ever since I heard it, I thought I should use this as part of one of the programs. And so today, I'm going to do that. So this is a poem which is popularly referred to as the Think of Me poem. I'll just play that rendition for you. Listen to it. Listen to those words carefully because it's a very profound message. The message that Krishna is trying to convey through some of these verses. So I'll play that poem for you. Listen to it. And then we'll resume with our Gita series and the two other shlokas that I have for today. My dear devotee, my dear loved one, as you pull through life, you will ask me, Lord, how will I know when you are near me? When on a sultry night, everything is hot and still, the first cool breeze that brushes your cheeks, I am caressing you. Think of me. When the pangs of hunger are satisfied, and your loneliness is pierced by happiness, think of me. When your mouth is parched and you can hardly speak, the first sip of cool water, I am soothing you. Think of me. When I sprinkle your face with cold rain and wash the earth, the dry brown leaves, at the first smell of clear rain, I am cleansing you. Think of me. When your stabbing pain dissolves, fears and anxiety disappear, think of me. When your steadfast eyes are horrified by the cruelties of life, at the first glance of the silent setting sun, I am comforting you. Think of me. My dear devotee, my dear loved one, then you ask, O oh Lord, how will I know when I am near you? When the burning sun has scorched you and the earth, the sand and dust fill your eyes, not a sliver of shade about, and you love me. When your lips are cracked, your tongue feels like clay, your throat seals up, there is no water about, not even a mirage in sight, and you love me. When I stir the ocean to a crescent, you flounder in its depth like a leaf, and you love me. 
when pain becomes unbearable, you smile and you love me. Everything that you see, hear, smell, taste or touch belongs to me. So how can you give to me what I already own but your love? And that love I gave to you before time began as your sole possession. When you return it to me, then I will know you are truly mine and I will dissolve all your sorrow and happiness into me. That love being me, I will place you in bliss forever. For I love and think of you constantly from your most loving father. Wasn't that simply beautiful? I really loved that poem and I can't tell you how wonderful that particular rendition of that poem is so soulful. And that's the idea that I was saying that Krishna is clearly conveying through this. When he says that I am the pleasant aspect of these elements, it means that this is the pathway that Krishna is showing. Can you recognize God? Can you sense the presence of God every time there is something pleasant that is happening to you? And when do you know that you have reached a state where you are close to God? That is when, even when pain reminds you of God, you are able to look beyond suffering and you are able to love Him as the lines of that poem went when you're able to love me even in suffering then you are near me and the closing lines as i said are very poignant and apt to what we are discussing at this point in the gita where the poem goes for everything you see you hear you smell you taste or you touch belongs to me right so that's the poem that i wanted to play for all of you and uh, i hope it made sense what Krishna is conveying here and what that poem was trying to convey. Going back to our shloka, yes, I have not forgotten that I am still midway even in that shloka. Before we are able to move forward, we will have to complete that. So in the shloka, in the next line, Krishna says, Jeevanam Sarvabhuteshu Again, a reiteration of a point that Krishna made when he was speaking of the two prakritis, where he said, I am the life in all beings. Jeevanam Sarvabhuteshu, I am the life in all beings. It is that life force that makes a body a person. I had spoken about this when we were discussing that particular shloka too. So he says, what makes a body which would otherwise be a corpse into a person? I am that life form which makes a person a living being. And the last such description that Krishna gives in the shloka is, Tapahacha asmi, and I am the austerity, tapasvishu, in the ascetics. I am the austerity in the ascetics. Again, a very significant point. I am the tapa in the tapasvi. What is this tapas really? I think I've already discussed this while speaking about abhyasa and vairagya, because Swami says that true tapas. What he was referring to as Abhyasa, Swami said, is tapas. And 
Elsewhere Swami says, and I quoted it at that point in time also, Tapas is nothing but Trikarna Shuddhi. The whole idea is like this. From deep within each one of us, God as conscience prompts us as what is right and what is wrong. Tapas is nothing but aligning one's thoughts, words and deeds to this instruction or prompting that comes from within. That is why Swami had said tapas is threefold. It is sharirika, vachasika and manasika. So tapas of the body, speech and mind is nothing but the alignment of these to the inner conscience and that is what is referred to as tapas and it is not some physical asana or going to the forest and doing austerities through which the body is put through endless trouble. That is not the case. So given this explanation of Swami, what does Krishna mean by saying that I am the tapas in the tapasvi? The tapasvi does not bring something from outside. He doesn't acquire some object or external knowledge. Tapas is a process by which one becomes lesser and lesser an obstacle for the divinity to shine from within. And how does one do that? By aligning the thought, word and deed to the divinity within. So when Krishna says, I am the tapas of the tapasvi, what we see as tapas is nothing but the divinity shining from within. This is the inner significance I feel of this statement that Krishna is making in this shloka. When you see the noble nature of a tapasvi, when you see the brilliance of goodness in an austere person, that nobility and brilliance is nothing but we having a glimpse of the divinity within that person and that individuality of that person is becoming a lesser and lesser obstacle for that divinity to shine. But going by the other examples that we've been coming through in this particular chapter, it can also be seen as that quality that defines a person. A tapasvi is qualified by tapas. So in that way, he or she becomes a normal person if you remove that tapas from the tapasvi. So what makes a tapasvi a tapasvi? Krishna says, I am that quality. So again, it is an example that defines the personality of that entity. So this is the ninth verse, which I completed half last time and I've completed the remaining today. We'll go to the next shloka, the tenth shloka. The examples of the same kind continue. When we listen to that, in the voice of Brother Sham, I'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we'll discuss in detail what Krishna is conveying there. Dijammam sarvabhutanam Vidhi partha sanatanam Puddhir buddhi matamasmi Tejas tejas vinamaham O Partha, know me to be the eternal seed of all beings. I am the intellect of the intelligent. I am the courage of the courageous. So the description of God being the essential aspect of all continues in this shloka and of course in the next shloka as well. This shloka is very special because it contains one statement that Swami has quoted many, many, many times in his discourses. And that statement is Bijam Maam Sarvabhutanam. Bijam means seed. 
So Krishna is stating, I am the seed in all beings. Vidhi Partha Know this, O Partha, Sanatanam, the Eternal One. When Krishna says Sanatanam, he is referring to himself. There is a significance why that word is being used here. We will come to that in a short while. So Krishna states, I am the seed in all beings. There are two ways this one statement can be looked at. One is, if we see in the context of whatever Krishna has been saying so far, that is, he says, I am the unique aspect of each individual entity. So in that sense, this could be a sweeping statement that covers all beings and their uniqueness. Every tree or plant, every tree or plant comes from a seed that is unique to it, right? From that seed, only that plant or that tree can come. So whenever Swami would speak of karma and consequences, one of the examples that he would often give is, he say that if you plant a lemon seed, you will only get a lemon plant. You cannot expect a mango fruit after having planted a lemon seed, right? So the idea was Swami would speak of that as every karma as a consequence. But here when Krishna says that I am the seed in every being, there is a unique seed for every life form. And also there is a process attached to that seed becoming that life form. A coconut tree takes a certain amount of time to grow. A bamboo takes a different time frame to grow. There are different requirements similarly for different and different plants in different trees. Similarly with humans and all animals, they all have a certain process of growing from the seed. Of course, in plants, in animals, we refer to it as maybe an egg. right? From that state of being an egg to becoming a fully grown individual, there is a certain process, there is a time frame and there is a unique way in which it happens. When the various organs must form, when the limbs must come, when the limbs can support the body of that particular individual, when the digestive system is able to take solid food, when it can you know, start thinking on its own, living on its own, all of that. And all of this is programmed into that seed or into that egg. So when Krishna says, Bijam Maam Sarvabhutanam, it means, I am the essence and the keeper of this knowledge of the process of growth and development in each of these beings. Truly, this is probably one of the most fascinating things about creation. I keep saying this and I'm sure I must have mentioned this a few times already in the series. Just imagine the wonder of the human growth itself. As we say, we all started off as a fertilized egg and the size of that fertilized egg is that of a printed full stop. Right? When you type a document in the computer, the size of the full stop, and even as I'm saying this, I can see a full stop in front of me and that's the size of a fertilized human egg. Today we are 5 or 6 feet tall. We weigh 70, 80, 90 kgs. Everything has started with that small full stop. And everything from when the heart should start beating, how the brain must develop, when the teeth must grow, when the milk teeth must fall and when the permanent ones must again grow, how the molar teeth must have a different shape compared to the incisors, where all in the, in the body there must be hair growth, where there must be nail growth, 
which tissues must be soft, which must be hard. Everything is programmed into that fertilized egg. Take any one small organ in the body, for example, the eye. There are three different types of photoreceptor cells just in that one organ. There are different cells that make up the optic nerve. There are different sets of cells that become the lens. A different set of tissues that become the retina. Different set of tissues that form the muscle that operate the lens. And all of this in this one organ. And like that, we have so many organs in this body. And how each organ should have different tissues and how each of those tissues should perform. Everything is programmed into that fertilized egg which is the size of a printed full stop. It is like enormous amount of data contained in that small speck, right? Isn't that, I mean, it's fascinating and amazing. When Krishna says, I am the seed, it not only means a physical beginning of the individual, I think it is also a reference to that knowledge of how this whole process is going to pan out. Imagine if you have to write an algorithm for this entire process from the point of that fertilized egg to how each one of these organs have to pan out and also timing of, you know, it is also programmed when your black hair is going to start becoming grey. Imagine the detail to which it has been programmed. If you were to write an algorithm, it's going to run into thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. That entire code, that entire wisdom, Krishna says, it is me. And he says, Bijam Maam Sarva Bhutanam, not only of this human body, of every plant, of every animal, of every mammal, every creature, that entire process, Krishna says, I am that. Right? So, this is in line with what Krishna has been saying. So, every unique aspect, I am that unique aspect which is present as that seed in that individual entity. But when this statement is quoted, by itself, as it is, like we have heard Swami quoting it in his discourses, even then it has a very profound meaning and the idea it gives is slightly different but a little more broader perspective. So I'll probably read out just one para from a discourse where Swami uses this statement. As I said, this is just a sample. Many, many discourses Swami has used this statement. So I'll just read out this one particular excerpt where Swami is conveying that broader perspective that can be brought with this particular statement. Swami says, and I quote, The Lord declares that He is the seed of all beings. Bijam Maam Sarva Bhutanam. Watch a tree. The roots, the trunk, the branches, the twigs, the shoots, the leaves, the flowers, the fruits, all look different in form, taste, hardness, smell and so on. They have different uses for the tree and for us. But all this manifold variety is produced, sustained, subsumed and served by one single seed. And each fruit contains the same seed. He is the seed. He is the tree. He is the fruit. And love is the seed, love is the tree, love is the fruit. End of quote. That's from a discourse that Swami delivered on the 5th of October 1970. So Swami is stating very clearly another way of looking at this particular shloka. Just like how the soft flower and the hard bark 
the sweet fruit and the bitter leaves come from the same seed the various people of different natures and appearances the various species of plants and animals they might look completely different there is no similarity between say a lizard and probably a fish or i mean i'm just thinking you can think of two completely different entities swami says just like how the soft flower and the hard trunk comes from the same seed these different variety that you see in creation also comes from the same seed and in that quote that i read out swami says that that seed is love right god is love and as love god is present in all these different varieties that we see what is the significance of krishna saying sanatana in that complete statement of that shloka he says bijam mam sarvabhutanam vidhi partha sanatanam a question that could be asked at this point is when you say krishna i am the seed of all beings is there a seed even for you does krishna also have a seed from where he has manifested so the word sanatana is to clear that doubt he says i am the eternal seed bijam mam sanatanam i am the eternal seed everything else in the world manifests and vanishes but this seed has no manifestation and vanishing it is sanatana it is eternal so it is like krishna saying all that you see has come from me while i have always been i have not come from anything and i am not going anywhere so that is the significance of krishna saying bijam mam sarvabhutanam vidhi partha sanatanam i am the seed in all of this know me to be that eternal seed o partha in the next line krishna adds two more statements like the ones that we have been going through he says buddhi hi buddhi matam asmi i am the buddhi or intelligence in the buddhi matam in the intelligent one tejah tejasvinamaham i am the tejas or the splendor in the tejasvi in the splendid or splendorous two very beautiful statements i am the intelligence in the intelligent i am the splendor of the splendid tejas can be spoken of as brilliance of the physical body as well as spiritual brilliance right tejas is often used for spiritual brilliance when you say that hey, this person has so much tejas it means that you're saying that this person seems to be of spiritual brilliance the idea behind both these statements is that god is these qualities that we often allow ourselves to be proud of when we say i have a very high iq or when you have a talent and you say that i have this special talent instantly there is a certain pride attached to that you say that i am beautiful or i am powerful i am strong it becomes a means for ego or ahankara similarly when you have tejas we look charming or we have a you know certain spiritual attainment which kind of shows as effulgence on our face we tend to be proud of it so in this statement when krishna says i am that brilliance i am that intelligence he is removing the basis for that ahankara by saying that it is me that is shining as these qualities there's a very famous quote by a famous english writer arthur young 
and uh, this was a statement which was be often quoted in our awareness classes in the university by our teachers it goes god sleeps in the minerals awakens in the plants walks in the animals and thinks in man i'll repeat that statement he says god sleeps in the minerals awakens in the plants walks in animals and thinks in man so it is the same divinity that expresses as these different qualities in these different minerals plants and animals and men right so the act of being merely existing the act of awareness or consciousness that of movement or locomotion and thinking these are all different ways in which the same divinity expresses in stones plants animals and men in the rock god is present as what we refer to the quality as astitva just existence right we think that a rock is not doing anything but it is there it is right that isness is referred to as astitva so in an inanimate object god is present as isness or existence similarly when you talk about a plant plant now has this ability to grow it as a life it has an ability to convert one form of energy to another so that growth and that life is god and similarly when we finally come to man we say that man can discriminate man has a buddhi man can actively distinguish between what is right and what is wrong and what is good for him and what is not good for him that ability to discriminate is nothing but god choosing to show up as that quality in that particular entity right so that is the statements that krishna makes in this particular shloka as i said it's a continuation but as we are going through we are also able to see that there is a slight broadening of the idea of what he says as i am present in these qualities we'll go to the next shloka this shloka also is structured in a similar manner but it also conveys something more than what has been conveyed till now it's a very significant shloka for that we'll listen to that i'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we'll discuss a little more in detail about what krishna is conveying in this shloka this is the 11th shloka in the 7th chapter balam balavatan chaham kamaraga vivarjitam dharma viruddho bhuteshu and of the strong i am the strength which is devoid of passion and attachment among creatures i am desire which is not contrary to righteousness a scion of bharata dynasty so that's the 11th verse as i just mentioned to you before playing that shloka this is slightly different from the previous one and is also very important for that same reason because it conveys a very important point it is not merely a philosophical statement but it is also one that we can look at it in a very practical way and there's a very practical message in it often times when you interact with youngsters this is a question that sometimes many times has come to us is it wrong to have aspirations is it wrong to aspire to have a comfortable good life is it wrong to have desires to give comfort to our parents who have brought us up is it wrong that we have ambitions of becoming successful growing in our profession and career the answer to those questions can be found in this particular shloka 
As I was saying in the previous shloka, when Krishna says, "I am the intelligence of the intelligent. I am the brilliance of the brilliant." In a way, Krishna is stating how meaningless is the idea of ego itself is to think that I am intelligent. I am so talented. You know, I am so beautiful. I am so handsome. Because all these are nothing but God shining through that individual, and it does not belong to the ahankara to be claimed by the ahankara. And we are only fooling ourselves when we gloat over these qualities. And when we say fooling ourselves in the spiritual sense, it means we are only moving farther away from God. We are moving farther away from paraprakriti and getting entangled in aparaprakriti. So, in what way does this ego manifest itself in our minds? We have spoken extensively about ahankara. It's going to come again, but ahankara is a very subtle quality, right? And when we say ahankara, it is not merely pride. Or pride is an expression of ahankara, probably the farthest expression of ahankara. But ego manifests as certain qualities in the mind, and Swami would often say this, and we've also discussed about this in the series earlier. Ahankara expresses itself as attachment. Ahankara becomes mamakara. That mamakara is nothing but attachment. And ahankara, when you say that I am this body, I am this personality, it manifests as limitedness. When I think that I am so and so, along with that also comes the idea that I am poor, I am not beautiful, or I am like this, or I should do something and I should become rich, I should become great. So desire and attachment are some very visible manifestations of this ahankara in our mind. In the previous shloka, Krishna dealt with ego itself in a very subtle manner. In this shloka, he mentions these qualities of desire to become something or attachment, the desire to retain something that you already have. Those two qualities are made a reference to in this particular shloka. He says, "Balam." Balavata masmi, I am the strength in the strong, but he doesn't stop there. He qualifies that strength. He goes on to say, Kama raga vivarjitam, balam balavata masmi, kama raga vivarjitam. That strength, I am that strength in the strong, which is free from kama and raga. Kama raga vivarjitam. Generally, when Krishna has uh, spoken of as karma or desire, we've seen that raga and dvesha is nothing but desire itself. The desire that I want something, the desire that I don't want something, likes and dislikes, together they form what is referred to as karma. But here in this particular shloka, Krishna uses karma and raga. So when he does that, it is a representation of something different. Here it means it is. Desire or craving, that is, you desire for something that you don't have, and attachment, you're trying to hold on to something that you've already acquired. Very similar to the concept of yoga kshema that we had spoken about in one of the shlokas. Yoga is trying to have union with something that you don't have. Kshema is trying to hold on to something that you've already made contact with. Similarly, in a very similar sense, karma raga is a reference to that. So Krishna says. I am that strength, which is devoid of cravings and attachments. 
Here in this sense, Bala, I feel, does not refer only to physical strength. Because strength can be in many, many ways. Strength also means influence. It could mean clout, ability to get things done, ability to move things around. And in different stages of our life, we acquire different kinds of balas or strengths. How do we use that strength in a manner that it takes us closer to God and not away from God? Can we ensure that our strength is not used in the direction of our karma and raga? I think that is the message that Krishna is giving in this particular statement. Sometimes such strength and influence comes to us even unasked, right? It's not always that we are looking after strength and we want authority and we get it. Every parent has a certain amount of authority and strength over the child. Every teacher has a certain authority over his or her students. One becomes a boss, one becomes a superior in the organization. Automatically with that, a certain amount of authority comes, right? You don't ask for it. I mean, when you start a career, you might be a person who is not after authority, who is not interested in promotions, who doesn't want to become the boss or CEO. But if you are able to do your work in the right manner, you will eventually get there, right? So even if you don't have aspiration for authority and strength and power, it will eventually come. And when it comes, you cannot run away from that strength. Pretty much like what Krishna is trying to advise Arjuna, that being a Kshatriya, being a prince, being somebody of such talent, along with it comes a certain amount of authority and you cannot run away from that. It comes with a certain amount of power. You cannot drop that and go away. You have to find a way by which you have to use it in a manner that it does not take you away from the goal, but it takes you closer to the goal. And for that, this statement that Krishna makes is a beautiful pointer. Balam balavatam asmi kama raga vivarjitam Every time you use your strength without any desire or attachment, in other words, to protect your own self-interest. If you are able to use your strength not to protect your own self-interest, in that expression of that balam or strength, God manifests in those actions. That is why this shloka is slightly different from the previous one and also a very practical pointer as to how we can use the powers and strengths and authority that we happen to come across in life. In the very next line, Krishna gives another beautiful instruction very similar to this first statement. He says, Bhuteshu, in beings, dharma aviruddha, unopposed to dharma, kamosmi bharatarishabha. Desire, I am that desire, O bharatarishabha. A very profound statement. Krishna is saying, I am desire. Oftentimes we get into this thing of, am I supposed to give up all desires? How do I become desireless? Swami says that you should not have desires. But here is Krishna making a very profound statement. He says, Kamos me. He says, I am desire. I am the desire that comes up, that occurs in your mind. But he qualifies that. He says, I am Dharma Aviruddha Kama Asmi. Yes, the ultimate state is to go beyond all desires. There's no doubt about that, right? It has already been mentioned a few times in uh, some of the shlokas that we've come through. But as long as we are these individual beings, 
as long as we have a certain amount of yaktitva or individuality we will have desires of some form or the other so krishna says don't be averse to these desires because they are also an expression of who i am krishna says i am that desire in your mind but if you wish to ensure that these desires don't take you away from god but draw you closer to god then we must always ensure that the expression of these desires are through dharmic means that is what krishna means by saying dharma aviruddha dharma means righteousness aviruddha means it is not contrary so that desire or that desire should express itself in a manner that it is not adharmic and this kama or this desire covers all kinds of aspirations and desires from a small desire to lust ambition desire for comforts a decent lifestyle desire for a good name and fame in society all of this comes under this kama that krishna says i am that kama even if we want to become desireless i don't think you and i can get up today and say i don't want these desires or oh, desires go away it doesn't work that way right if it works that way it would just take one day to become a spiritual person so these these desires have to be dealt with in a manner and that is being told by here by krishna here he says they have to be given a dharmic expression the desires are there those desires have to be channelized in a manner that they do not bind us and these desires have to be given expression through dharma and i think uh, there are many many programs earlier also i have spoken about this swami speaks about marriage as a very dharmic expression for lust swami speaks about you know when you want to become rich there's nothing wrong in trying to work hard but don't take to any shortcuts work hard put in your effort and take to the righteous means take a righteous profession take a profession by which you can serve society and automatically you will become rich so these are all ways by which you can give a righteous expression to some of these desires that arise in the mind so that is the question that we must ask ourselves when we are dealing with desires is there a way by which i can give a very dharmic expression to these desires so that is why in this particular shloka the two statements that krishna makes here is not only that philosophical sense of the statements that he has been making so far but is also a very practical tip as to how to deal with the power and authority that you have how to deal with the desires that you have and he goes on to say that i am that power i am the desire and the moment you think of that imagine you are given the authority or you're given the responsibility of running an organization a certain amount of power is vested on you the moment you think that this power this responsibility given to me is god the way you will dispense that responsibility will be completely different right and that's the concept that was even followed in the past when it comes to a king right a king was always looked up as a representative of god and the king would look at his duties as being said that you know especially when you talk about capital punishment or the authority to give punishment to a person the king would look at that as a huge burden on him because this is a divine responsibility given to him divinity itself expressing itself as a responsibility in front of him right 
the way you will look at that power and authority will be completely different. Similarly, desire, when you look at desire itself as an expression of God, the way you will dispense that desire or the way you will satisfy that desire will be completely different. Swami would often uh, say that God is present in man as three kinds of powers. This is especially something that you will find in the Dashara discourses that Swami would give. Because Dashara is a celebration of the Shakti aspect of God. right? The worship of Shakti is a predominant feature of the Dashara celebrations. So Swami would say that God is present as three forms of Shakti in each human being. They are Jnana Shakti, Icha Shakti and Kriya Shakti. Jnana Shakti means the power of intelligence. Icha Shakti means the power of will or desire. And Kriya Shakti means the power of activity or action. If you look at the few shlokas that we went through, Krishna covers all of these different types of Shaktis in these shlokas. When he said, Tapas Chasmi Tapasvishu, I am the Tapas in the Tapasvi, Buddhihi Buddhimatam Asmi, intelligence in the intelligent, and Tejaha Tejasvinam Aham, brilliance in the brilliant, he was making a reference to this Jnana Shakti, right? In all these statements, he is referring to that Jnana Shakti that Swami speaks about, that intelligence, that Buddhi, that Tapas Shakti. Krishna says, I am that. And when he says, Balam Balavatam Asmi, it is a reference to Kriya Shakti, right? Because without strength, nothing can be done. I spoke about authority and power. Unless I have a certain power over my own limbs, I will not be able to do anything. To be able to speak something, to be able to pick up something from here to there, I should have a certain power over my body. That balam, that vitality, right, is God. Even the statement that Krishna made, Paurusham Nrishu, that is also a reference to this Kriya Shakti that Swami would speak about. Finally, when he says, Bhuteshu Kamosmi, it is a reference to this Icha Shakti, that ability to have a will, right? It's not merely a desire. Icha Shakti also means willpower. To do anything, Swami says, you want to start a sadhana, you want to start learning an instrument, you want to start doing an activity. It all starts with the will to do that activity, right? It is another form of desire. So when Swami says, I am the Kama, it means that Sankalpa, the will to take up something, to do something be it seva, be it uh, acquiring of a new talent or be it performing your own duties and tasks at home or in your office, all of that starts with this Icha Shakti. So when Krishna says, I am that Kama, it is a reference to that Icha Shakti. So that is the uh, 11th shloka and I think we'll conclude with that. I'm running out of time. So dear listeners, do join me again next week for the continuation of this Gita series. Thank you for being with me. And if you have any suggestions, if you have any feedback based on what has been spoken in this program or any other episodes, feel free to write to us. You can write to our feedback mail, listener at radioside.org. You can write to me directly if that, that is easier for you, prem at radioside.org. Or you can also send us your feedback to our WhatsApp number like many of you prefer to do. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet. Thank you for your patient listening. Keep safe. Till I meet you next time. Jai Sairam.